welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode 46, recorded on November 6, 2019. Google finally recognizes the Cloud Pod hosts as celebrities. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Love it. Good evening. How is it going, guys? It's a, another lovely Wednesday here on Ignite Week. Uh, so it's been a busy week in the Azure world, but uh, a little quieter on the AWS front and the uh, Google front as they kind of take a back seat to the big news of Azure this week. I'm sure they're saving. Amazon's obviously saving the good stuff for uh, reInvent coming up here. Yeah, I've noticed much less. Like last year, about this time last year, Amazon were pumping out these press releases. I'm like, wow, what, the, what are they going to say for for reinvent? But this year, there's virtually nothing. It's kind of interesting, but yeah, it's definitely been a little quiet on the the pre-announcement front for reinvent. Uh, also, just you know, noticing other things about you know the schedule got out late. I feel like to book your sessions, the mobile app hasn't been updated. I think everything's a little bit behind, which is. Sort of funny because I've heard from people inside of AWS that you know they started planning for reInvent like three months earlier this year than they did last year. So uh, you know it's it's a little interesting how that turns out on this side of the process. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, some follow-up items. Uh, we have quite a few actually this week, uh, which is a bit nice. So the first of all, uh, in episode 34, we talked about AWS suing Philip Moyer. Uh, Philip Moyer was a sales rep who had moved from AWS to Google Cloud. Uh, on the AWS side, he was dealing with healthcare customers, and uh, on the Google side, he was dealing with financial services. And uh, AWS attempted to uh, argue that that uh, is an, against their non-compete clauses in their contract, and the court has now ruled, and the court uh, is basically saying, sorry, Amazon, you're out of luck. Uh, <laughs> the ruling came down that they are not allowed to prevent him from going to Google, uh, but they did impose some conditions on uh, Philip uh, for his work at Google, so he cannot... Uh, work with Google Cloud financial services customers. Uh, he cannot contact any AWS customers, including healthcare customers. Uh, and this prohibits him from talking to customers on AWS interested in moving to GCP as well, and may not contact potential AWS or GCP customers in the financial services space. Uh, so he has to stick to that healthcare vertical, and he can't talk to healthcare companies that are already on AWS trying to make a move, uh, at least for the period of his non-compete. So was that like time limited? I didn't see anything in the article about that, but like, was it with, like for... I assume it has to be time limited because your non-compete's only typically valid for 12 to 18 months, and that's really the time that they're concerned about the competitive threat of what he might know or might be able to use to take advantage of AWS in, in a sales opportunity. Yeah, it's, it's like a, a weird discrepancy between uh, a right-to-work state and, and these contracts that employers make you sign. So. It's interesting. Uh, there's a couple of notes here from the judge. Um, and uh, that I thought was a little interesting. He said the uh, court is especially aware that all the all but the most advantaged employees are unlikely to combat Amazon's broad claims. Amazon no doubt relishes its opportunity to exert pressure and control over its departing employees. Uh, but he put in his filing notes, uh, Moyer is not a developer. The court struggles to see how Moyer is likely to lead timely development of Google Cloud services to compete with AWS services that are already being developed. First, the services may not even transfer to Google Cloud's current offerings. Secondly, it may not be possible to develop competing services within Google Cloud's framework. And third, Google Cloud is presumably already planning its own services to seek what it expects to be its own competitive advantage. Uh, so basically he's saying, this is a little bit unfair. <laughs> you know, you're know, you picking on employees who may not have the legal means to fight this in court like uh, Philip did. And that's a really unfortunate situation. And then you know, the fact that he's a salesperson, he's not actually 
building product or IP that could conflict uh, with something that AWS is already building, uh, most likely in his role as a salesperson. So, yeah, but interesting. I, I, you know, salespeople build rapport with customers, and customers are often very attached to their salespeople, especially after years of dealing with them. So, I, I suppose if you if you believe the salesperson um, believes in the product they're selling, and they move somewhere else, and they think that it's a better product, then it's, it's understandable that customers want to move with them. Yeah, potentially if that relationship is there, but you know, it, it's hard to say. You know, there's a few times where a salesperson's moved from company to company where I've sort of like had loyalty to that salesperson across companies. Um, typically, you know, you're loyal to the products that you're being sold, and the salesperson's just the person lying to you most of the time. Anyways, so. <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty cool that that uh, that judge seems pretty smart. That's pretty cool. He seemed to have really relevant comments about about a pretty abstract service offering. So that was pretty cool to hear. Yeah, it's definitely good. I, I would think if you're a judge in the Seattle area <laughs> or any, any place on Tech Hub, you should be somewhat adverse in some of the issues of the day in that space, but uh, definitely refreshing to see. Uh, moving on to uh, Capital One, as you guys know, Paige Thompson uh, was arrested in conjunction with the Capital One breach. Uh, there's been some updates in the case that I thought we'd update you on. So apparently they've identified 20 to 30 terabytes of data uh, in her possession uh, as part of the Capital One probe. And apparently 30 other organizations in and outside the U.S. were also accessed by Paige using custom scanning software that searched for misconfigured firewalls meant to protect corporate information stored in the cloud. Uh, Thompson still has not been released on bail, and the trial has been scheduled for March 2020. So I've, I bet we'll get a lot more information as that gets closer to us. The Senator Wyden and Warren, we mentioned their letter uh, and the response from uh, AWS back to them a few months back. Uh, they have now sicked the FTC onto AWS. Uh, they believe that AWS may have broken the law by renting defective servers to Capital One. Uh, this is their concern. After the Capital One breach by Paige Thompson, uh, they're referring mostly to uh, known issues with SSRF vulnerabilities in the cloud, uh, and that they believe, uh, unlike Google and Microsoft, who have been providing protections for SSRF since 2013 and 2017, respectively, Amazon has failed to do so, even though it's been discussed at customer conferences for the last five years. Uh, and in, apparently in August 2018, there was a cybersecurity expert who reached out to them uh, and asked them to adopt that process, and they have so far ignored that process. So overall, uh, this is one of those positioning letters, especially in this very political time, and Amazon agreed. They, their comment was, the letter's claim is baseless and a publicity attempt from opportunistic politicians. As Capital One has explained, the perpetrator attacked a misconfiguration at the application layer of a Capital One firewall. The SSRF technique used in this incident was just one of the many subsequent steps the perpetrator followed after gaining access the company systems and could have been substituted for a number of other methods given the level of access already gained. Yeah. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, the opposite end of the judge is Ron Wyden and Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. No comment. <laughs> no. Gonna move, I'm, move right along from that comment. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually, um, on, 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 I guess, a more personal note, I'm, I'm happy that the judge is acknowledging the challenges that somebody like Paige Thompson is going to face in um in in jail or in prison and it's just sort of trying to accommodate you know the safety of her yeah that was interesting um i didn't put that in the show notes but it was in the article uh but you know they mentioned the judge is concerned about her well-being and you know her ability to get treatment uh to help with her you know her transition items that she needs etc because she is a transitioning woman uh, and so she, he was definitely concerned about her safety and her, her ability to get the medical treatment that she needs. 
Um, and so that was uh, something he he does want to figure out some way to get her out on bail, it sounds like, at the end of the day. But uh, they have not quite figured out what that looks like yet. Well, moving on to uh, AWS news, new news, uh, instead of follow-ups here. Uh, Amazon Web Services has decided to expand to Spain uh, with a new cloud region. This will be the new re- seventh new region in the EU, uh, joining Dublin, Frankfurt, Frankfurt, London, Paris, Stockholm, and soon Milan. Spain will open in late 2022 or early 2023. Uh, Peter DeSantis, uh, VP of Global Infrastructure at AWS, said, Cloud computing is already powering innovation within businesses, educational institutes, public administrations, and government agencies across Spain. And with this AWS infrastructure region, we look forward to helping accelerate this transformation. Opening an AWS region in Spain will drive more technology jobs and businesses, boosting local economy, while enabling organizations across all industries to lower costs, increase security, and improve agility. We're excited to have AWS contribute to the future growth of Spain. Shout out to Flavio in Spain. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, Flavio. Definitely. Yeah, that's cool. Apparently, AWS is uh, Esquema Nacional de Seguridad. I just butchered all that. <laughs> ENS high certified, meaning its infrastructure meets the highest levels of security and compliance for government agencies. And my Spanish is not good, so <clears throat> I apologize to our Spanish listeners. Mm, excellent. <laughs> uh, AWS has announced Post Quantum TLS, uh, now available in KMS. Uh, of course, AWS KMS is uh, supporting this through the TLS encryption protocol and will be used with the new KMS API endpoints. Uh, post-quantum TLS is a feature that adds new post-quantum cipher suites to the protocol. Uh, AWS implemented this in June 2019 with two proposed post-quantum hybrid cipher suites specified in the IETF draft. The cipher suites specify a key exchange that provides the security protections of both the classical and post-quantum schemes. Uh, and this gets into a lot of math <laughs> that I don't understand. And so uh, I'm sure this is really interesting for many, many people, one of those not being me, because uh, I don't understand the math completely. But uh, definitely trying to be future-proof a little bit with this post-quantum talk around encryption. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess the... The, the crux of the matter here is that the, the suspicion is that quantum computing can crack current TLS uh, public key encryption and that this new algorithm can um, sort of sidestep that or at least delay um, the uh, the risks associated with this type of encryption and quantum computing. Especially with Google announcing their quantum supremacy recently. Yeah, I mean, it is pretty... There was a lot of doomsday talk about quantum computers basically making encryption uh, obsolete. And it's mm-hmm. great that we now have a quantum computer that can theoretically do a tiny bit of math. And uh, we've already got proposed standards for quantum-proof encryption. I mean, they, they call it post-quantum, but we're not really there yet. So this is kind of like pre-post-quantum. <laughs> <laughs> it's preemptive quantum. Absolutely. Yeah, preemptive. <clears throat> That's what it is, exactly. And the, and the algorithms that have been developed for quantum computers, which aren't actually capable of running the algorithms yet, are certainly capable of breaking TLS as it is right now very quickly. Oh, for so, sure. Uh, I, th- I think um, this may be slightly uh, preemptive. <laughs> I, I think uh, quantum computing could probably break anything that surrounds it at this point as far as encryption goes because of the way it can parallelize these, uh, these kind of processes. But, you know... It's well, and even the quantum computers that are out today, which are you know, using qubit processors, are not really true quantum, are they? I mean, I, I, this is not an area that I'm strong in, so some reader can write into us and sell, say I'm wrong. I'm happy to be corrected. But they are. My understanding is yeah. they're not. They're not really quantum. They're close. They're very, very close, but they're not quite 
what, what the definition of quantum is, at least in the original papers around this topic. Um, IBM definitely have quantum computers, and you can log into the website and register and register an account, and you can actually run your own code on their on their quantum computers or in their simulator, at least. And um, I'm, I'm sure Google claimed to have. Uh, an enormous sort of qubits for their quantum computers. So I, I think I think we're here right now, but I, I think the people who have control over these computers are probably not the people we need to worry about for now. I imagine they come with a very, very large price tag. I'm sure they do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Millions or billions of dollars, for sure. Easily. Uh, and probably the NSA has several of them. It'd, it'd, be, yes, it'd be easier to uh, pay people for their passwords than it would be to build a computer to crack their encryption. For the right amount, I might be willing to sell it. Absolutely, yeah. Most companies already have it because of all the breaches that have happened over the years. Yeah. <laughs> hey, everyone. Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008. They are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Uh, well, moving on to Google. Uh, apparently on Halloween, after we recorded, uh, a pretty major outage occurred. Uh, this was tipped off to us from an active listener on our Slack channel. So again, if you uh, have not joined us on our Slack channel, it's a pretty fun place to hang out and talk about different uh, cloud questions or cloud news uh, that's happening out there, and we can help try to decipher that for you. Uh, but uh, someone tipped us off to, hey, uh, did the Google outage uh, impact you guys, or are you aware of it? And so that uh, was a link into the status page. Uh, apparently, this outage started on uh, the 31st uh, at 6.30 p.m. Pacific time and went until November 2nd at uh, 10.51 a.m. So that is a two-and-a-half-day outage uh, of their main uh, system. Apparently, customers were apparently impacted if they attempted to create or delete back-end services, subnets, instance groups, and firewall rules uh, initially. That was later updated to, say, Cloud Armor was also impacted, and then eventually Google Compute Engine, GKE, Google Cloud Memory Store, and the App Engine Flexible uh, all were receiving a much, much higher error rates uh, than initially expected. Uh, this continued on. The uh, announcements were a little weird. Uh, if you look at the, the timeline of the event, they pretty much had the same canned answer from 6 o'clock until the next morning around uh, 9 o'clock in the morning when GCP kind of updated with an actual status update that made sense and had actual information for you, which makes you feel like the engineers were all out trick-or-treating that night Absolutely. and didn't come yeah. in until the next morning to actually look at the issue, uh, which is a little concerning. And then uh, by about 2 o'clock that afternoon, they had about 30% of the GCP still impacted uh, and you know started to see that some of the error rates go down. They then said that they would take overnight to complete the processing the backlog. And then the, the next morning, they finally confirmed at 10.51 that other than a few handful of operations, they were completely out of the outage situation. Uh, there has been no RCA yet on this. Uh, we will keep an eye out for it here at the CloudPod and report back on that. But uh, a really bad day for uh, GK, uh, Google GCP customers. So that's unfortunate. Hug ops. But, you know, this is one of those areas where I really talk about um, the importance of understanding the culture of your cloud provider. And so 
you know, you see Azure spending a lot of money trying to prevent preemptive and avoid outages through intelligence and machine learning and AI. Uh, you know, I don't know what Google's doing in this area exactly because they haven't really been very public about it. But, you know, then Amazon is, is very adamant about separation of availability zones from regions and no interdependent regional services. Uh, and they've really been sticking to that for a long time, which is why you don't really see a lot of services that are multi-region aware or even multi-region capable without doing your own stitching because it violates their core primitive and principle around uh, independence of each data center. And so those cultural things end up impacting you in big ways. And this is one of those areas where this is a global outage <laughs> because of the way this process and service is designed by Google that may or may not have happened on something like AWS or Azure based on their principles, which are different. Yeah, but that global network is so convenient when you're configuring it. It is really fast. It's very sexy. <laughs> it's convenient. <laughs> Like, yeah, sure. One network. Add subnets from any any region to your network. Well, good news, you guys. Uh, Google has added celebrity recognition now to their uh, machine learning algorithms for approved media and entertainment customers. Uh, video, of course, is all but unsearchable without expensive, labor-intensive tagging processes. Uh, so this is a new catalog of celebrities uh, who are approved and known. And they will basically be available in this database that you can access as a media and entertainment customer to quickly identify content that has celebrities in it. So you can use it to power search engines. Uh, so if you want to find all that great content from Brad Pitt, uh, it's a simple search sure. into this API. And it'll tell you all of the videos that they've indexed that have Brad Pitt in it. Uh, this is interesting because they actually uh, invoked a human rights organization called Business for Social Responsibility to conduct a formal assessment of this technology's impact on human rights. Hmm. Uh, and so based on that, they have three principles they decided that are critical to this feature. So the first one being that celebrity is a carefully defined and restricted to a predefined list. And celebrities who do not want to be recognized by the API can opt out through an opt-out request process. Uh, this is not a general available feature. It's that it's only for customers in the media and entertainment uh, industry, and you have to be approved in advance before you're given access to this data set. Uh, and expanded terms of service apply to specifically address the unique concerns raised by this capability. Uh, and Google knows that the landscape is evolving with skyrocketing demands for personalized searchable video experiences. Uh, and this is uh, putting unique pressures on the media industry, and this is hoping to help them. I wonder if you're not a celebrity, if you could opt in. I mean, I'd, I'm, I'm worried that if you're not a celebrity, you, you can be opted in because this clearly is the kind of technology that can track people, um, any people in media or uh, closed caption TV, you know, CCTV or anything else, basically. So uh, this is kind of like the ultimate, um, I'm going to track you from any kind of video source service. Yeah, I, I actually am aware of a startup uh, that does video tracking of uh, using machine learning and facial recognition and tracks uh, people. And they, when they showed me the demo, they're actually using movies to show that technology. But, you know, it's very, you very quickly think about like, oh, this company sells this product to the government. And you can see very quickly how this, <laughs> how this ties into, you know, TSA searching and, and all kinds of things at the airport and different venues where they want to track large amounts of people moving through a space. Uh, very quickly and very easily with technology like this. So it's nice to see that, you know, Google's kind of saying, well, yes, it could be used for that evil intent, but, uh, or not evil intent, depending on what your political side is, but uh, we want to make sure this feature is specifically for a specific use case, which is the media needs for searchable video experiences. Yeah, I suppose from the, from the media perspective, it's good to know where your exposure is. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's good to know if your songs are appearing on radio or TV or if your face is appearing on 
on the in, in the media in news or anything else because that's what public relations and um and publicity agents need to need to know to know whether they're doing a, a good job um but, but yeah i guess uh, you, there's always different uses of technology and it's it's always concerning when it could certainly be used to uh, uh in the context of uh you know china and the hong kong protests for example um used to track people through uh, CCTV and, and uh, you know, hunting them down and putting them in jail. So, yeah. Yeah, these are several of the issues that the uh, human rights uh, organization they engage with talks about in their blog posts. So if you follow this link, uh, there's a link to the nonprofit organization who did a whole blog post about the things they were concerned about yep. uh, and how they helped Google to kind of do this as a partnership. It's a really good article. Um, I didn't really summarize any of it here because it was a little bit less from the technology side. But if you're curious about the human rights angle of it and kind of the things Jonathan was talking about, you can definitely uh, get some of their insight, which is really great. Yeah, I'm I'm just a you know cynical negative Nancy, so you know, don't mind me. <laughs> what about all those people who are trying so hard to get recognized and found on the internet with social media? This oh. is an opportunity. They should be able, they should be allowed to opt in. Wow. My my only goal at this point is to get Twitter verified. If I get Twitter verified, <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be a true celebrity. So. Yeah. Uh, Google Cloud Storage data protection uh, has been increased, so it can now fit your business better. Uh, Google has released several enhancements to the persistent disk. Uh, Google sees that customers have varying needs, and these trade-off considerations need to be addressed. And typical use cases that they see as uh, these, use ca these trade-offs are protecting applications that require regularly scheduled maintenance downtime. Uh, these hasps need short-term protection with very fast rollback in case of maintenance fails. Uh, for these workloads, the data doesn't need to be backed up off-site, but can be in the same location as the source data. So this would be if you're doing a rollout of, a, of an application deployment and you want to be able to fail back very quickly, you would use this particular use case. Uh, some customers need backup stored in specific regions to meet regulations or compliance requirements. We still need to be optimized for robust DR plans, including using multiple regions for backup or failover, which is the most common scenario, I think, out there. And another trade-off is uh, between synchronicity and physical separation and latency. And there are plenty of mission-critical enterprise apps, such as DBs, that require zero recovery point objective synchronous data replication with physical separation. And to meet this, they're willing to tolerate higher write latencies to achieve zero RPOs. And so their new features for Google Persistent Disk uh, provide these capabilities to the three new features. First, the snapshot locally for regional snapshots, uh, which fix, addresses the first use case. Scheduled snapshots for persistent disk and regional persistent disk automatically replicated between zones uh, meet all of these requirements in a big way, as well as these are all encrypted uh, out of the box, but now also support the new customer-provided encryption keys. That's really cool. I, I really hope Amazon listens to this kind of feedback and uh, and steps up to implement the same kind of features because you, you deploy a service which needs a disk in, a, in an AZ, and if the AZ goes down, the the volume is no longer accessible in the AZ. You know what, what do you do at that point? So so Google have solved this by replicating the the volume to every AZ. And so if you need to pick it up in a in a different place, and boot up your compute again and start processing the data, then it's there for you. Whereas uh, with Amazon, if the if the block device was in a region that went an AZ that went down, um, you, you're kind of screwed. <laughs> yeah. But AWS pretty much does this today, not for uh, EBS volumes, but for Aurora storage, for EFS. So, right, so they they have the technology. Then just the question is... Yeah, but it's all those, it's all those volumes, abstracted so. things, though. I mean, if, if you want to spin up a, a Confluent server or a Jira server or some kind of service which relies on local storage, 
it's only in one AZ. And unless yeah. you unless you lose, use something like DRDB or something to replicate block blocks between different AZs, it, it sucks. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And but I'm just saying they have the technology. They have the technology they do. to do it. They do. And the question is why haven't they released it? Yet? Yeah, they, they they have the technology. They have not exposed it to to us as consumers for sure. And right. I, I hope this kind of pressures them into doing the same thing. For sure. I, I agree. Yeah, I, I concur. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> I, I definitely, uh, there, these use cases exist, and you know, the amount of stitching you have to do between uh, a simple you know, EBS snapshot and then the ability to replicate that to another region, you know, that all requires Lambda in a lot of ways. And AWS Backup is kind of a good starting place to so automate some of that work, but it still would be nice if it just automatically snapshot to the other region versus snapshotted in this region. Um, or give me options to do all the things. That would be great. I mean, there's such a difference in what you do, what you have to plan for if you're near real-time RPO versus zero RPO. That yeah. just makes well, such I don't, I don't a even difference. Think, I don't even think Amazon could support a zero RPO at this point with their architecture. Like You'd have to design it into your app and write to dual databases and dual yep. regions for zero. So I mean, it can be done. It's just you have to. You're taking that work on in your apps here, here versus in the primitive. So, yeah. Maybe, uh, maybe we'll get something at uh, Reinvent. Who knows? Maybe. Yeah, yeah. But I'm, I'm sure it's it's something that many many customers want to solve, and so it's something they should fix at the platform layer. It would be nice, and and you know why we talked about just saying you know, the Google issue with that availability across regions and all that kind of stuff. It, I get that design parameter, but also give me the tools then to allow me to ship things quickly to other regions so I can support those use cases, um, especially in the things like RDS. Um, I want that multi-region capability without having to think about it. So, All right, moving on. Uh, introducing TensorFlow Enterprise from Google. Uh, supported, scalable, and seamless TensorFlow in the cloud. Uh, if you're developing AI, of course, you're most likely using TensorFlow, which was open sourced by Google in 2015, and it became uh, very popular. But enterprise users have higher demands and expectations for running supported, scalable, and seamless machine learning workloads. Uh, so TensorFlow for enterprise adds three new features, including enterprise-grade support, cloud-scale performance, and across the Google Cloud, uh, leveraging things like Kubernetes or the AI platform natively. The cloud scale performance is the ability to use the TensorFlow deep learning VMs and deep learning containers. And uh, TensorFlow Enterprise customers have increased data reading times up to 3x faster, drastically accelerating their workloads. And then in the support side, you have support for certain versions of TensorFlow for up to three years uh, with bug fixes and support. Uh, and that's a big deal. So if you're using TensorFlow and you need support or you need help, uh, Google is there to help you. Yeah, as a uh, technologist, I would say, these aren't features. There's nothing new here as far as TensorFlow goes. It's all about uh, selling more services to customers who want to use TensorFlow for sure. Yeah. I mean, there was a note here about um, you know, because Google created an open source TensorFlow, the Google Cloud is uniquely positioned to offer support and insights directly from the TensorFlow team itself. So you do you are paying for access directly to the developers in some ways uh, for TensorFlow. So if you have that feature you are super passionate about uh, getting into TensorFlow, uh, you can directly talk to the TensorFlow team, which is kind of nice. But uh, I assume they're also available on GitHub and other areas where you could find them to also ask for those same features. Yep. And our final Google story for the night, uh, exploring container security. Uh, you can now use your own keys to protect your data on Google Kubernetes. 
of course, Google Kubernetes has always encrypted your data at rest by default, including data in GKE. However, you may need to do this with your own keys now. And with the new persistent disk features, you can now encrypt the data using customer-provided keys, or CMEK keys, uh, generally available for GKE secrets encryption. Uh, so you can also protect your Kubernetes secrets. And customer magic encrypted keys are available for persistent disks uh, now in beta. So uh, pretty nice security additions for both of those. Yes. It's just great. You know, you have to, when, when you get to keep your own keys, it just, I know that a lot of these services are effectively compliant for lots of different um, standards, but if you can keep your own, if you get to keep your own keys, oftentimes, even if they aren't compliant, you're, you're pretty clear if they, the provider doesn't have the capability of accessing your data without your key. So I, I find it sounds strange because it's envelope encryption, and so the key you provide is not the key that encrypts the data. It's the key that encrypts the key that encrypts the data, right? right? <laughs> and so <laughs> potentially the, the provider already has access to the key. You know, you, you have to trust them that they're, they're only encrypting the key with your key and they have no other access to that key. It's, it's, it's kind of strange. I, I feel the same about KMS and Amazon. Um, it's, I feel like it's a veil of security rather than actually anything which provides any meaningful additional security to your data. Do you think it's just optics or do you think it actually like ends up covering the letter of the law for certain uh, compliance standards that aren't, haven't been updated yet? Yeah. Or is there another reason? No, I, th I think it's the second thing. You know, it, it's, it's all about customers maintaining control over the keys that encrypt the data. And in the case of envelope encryption, it's the keys that encrypt the keys that encrypt the data. And we, we want it that way because then Amazon or Google or Azure can, can on the back end, rotate the real encryption keys and uh, encrypt your data on a whatever cadence they choose. Um, but, but we maintain the control over the keys that encrypt those things in the cloud. So, I mean, it, it, it kind of makes sense. I, I, I like it. It definitely is a checkbox, I, th I think, rather than a real improvement in security. It always amazes me when you sit through some of those, uh, like, uh, when the when the product teams come in and they bring in the security guru and they go through the example of like you're describing the key that encrypts the key that encrypts the key, and you listen to it and it's all yeah, but at the end it's just it's pretty much just a really long password, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> even even the username really is part of the password. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a it's a pair of things. Uh, yeah. I agree with you, but I also don't have a better solution because. Uh, you know, when you talked about app level encryption, it gets much more complicated very quickly. And while there's technologies like Bouncy Castle and and others, they they're difficult to use at times. And the compliance now relies on the app side, where the security people would just like to worry about it at the infrastructure level. So there's pluses and minuses to both models. Yeah, I I think the the real kind of crux of the matter is it still relies on you trusting your provider to do the right thing with their encryption keys because they could well keep a copy unencrypted or encrypted their own keys. Um, it's, you know, unless you encrypt the data yourself with your own keys and you know that nobody else has access to that information, there is no way to be sure that nobody else has access to the data. And so, as always, it's, it's a trust issue. Yeah, it's, it's very much a trust but verify type thing where you want the assurances, which is why you're relying on companies to come in and do the audits because you can't do it yourself. And so that's, that's a bit problematic. Yeah. Trust, but contractually obligate. <laughs> Not quite as catchy. <laughs> Not quite as catchy. Yeah. All right, moving on to uh, Azure Ignite Draft. So uh, the draft came and went. We had the 
the lovely Sacha Nadella keynote on Monday, where he announced many, many things. Unfortunately, he announced nothing on Jonathan's list. Uh, although he does argue that he should get a half point uh, for the first one. So, Jonathan, I will let you make your argument for why you think you should deserve a half point for digital assistance to compete with Alexa or Google Home. Well, I, I believe I, I, my comment was really about uh, Microsoft need, needing to step up and and sort of retake the market for digital assistance and by implementing Cortana in, a, in Outlook, which is one of their uh, flagship products. I think they are taking the, the right step in the right direction to take the digital assistant market by storm. And that sucks. It really, it really sucks. I, I don't deserve a half point, and nor do they, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I, I listen to that. I Email, to turn your... on my lights. Email, please turn on my lights. <laughs> yeah, you know, I listened, I listened to the prediction you made last week, again, this, this on the drive home today, and I, I heard you say, uh, you know, a round cylindrical object on the on your desk that has Cortana in it, which it was not what was announced. Now it was not. Uh, I mean, there is Cortana now on a phone, which will help you with your email management, I guess. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't. I, I'm I'm not. I don't think this is a half point. I, I, other times you've had a half point; they've been legit. This one, I'm not sure I agree. It's it's not a half point. I'm very disappointed. I I think they're missing a huge opportunity. They are so. so seriously. They're years behind now. Uh, for Google Home and Alexa in the, the home assistant market, and they're not going to catch up. You know, people are going to choose their technology. They're going to start integrating their home security and media with a particular platform. And Microsoft is not it at this point. Um, they, they've lost. I don't see how they can come back from this. So I I was thinking about this pick, and my only thought to you was. You know, this is the Ignite conference, which is really targeted at IT professionals and IT uh, specialists using Azure Cloud. And why I agree with all the things you said, I'm not sure this would be the right event to announce this device. I think this device would be announced more like a Surface event, where they announce the new Surfaces to the world, uh, which did also just happen not that long ago. So you're still right, they're way behind and they have no plans to get there, but... Uh, the surfaces uh, event would be where I would think a device like this would appear. Yeah, potentially. I, I, I did think about that when I when I made the prediction. But I think about Amazon Alexa. Um, they're all about developers adding new features, and and it features in reInvent, and the, the same with Google. You know, they want people yeah, to build new again, skills. So they have a different conference called Microsoft Build, yeah. which is for the developers. So mm. if you're going to announce all those skills, that would be at the build conference. If you're going to announce the device, it would be at like just a normal press release for Surface. I think this audience in particular is very focused on Office 65, Dynamics, Azure, from a very IT perspective. I think that's the flaw in your thinking on this one. It's a lost opportunity either way. It is a lost opportunity, but I, I sort of see the thought process. But yeah, I... I also Googled around to see if there's been any rumors of a Cortana-type hockey puck device, and I have not really seen anything on the internet nope. uh, about that topic. So I think they are missing it. But moving on to the, the winners uh, from the <laughs> loser side. <laughs> uh, you also missed on uh, three more Asia regions in the U.S. and on more or improved tooling for DevOps communities, uh, which they did announce DevOps tooling, uh, just not on the keynote. So it was a close yep. swing and a miss. Uh, Peter thought they would have Istio for AKS and one more region in Canada uh, going with you on the uh, region thoughts, which were, uh, both of those were a miss. Uh, but he did hit Visual Studio Online, uh, which is their new online version of their IDE, uh, 
Uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more here in depth here in a few minutes. So congratulations, Peter. That's a oh, single you. point for you. You're welcome. Uh, and then I missed on Azure Portal Redesign and Oracle on Stage, uh, and I hit on SageMaker Databricks-like competitor, which we'll also talk about here in a minute. Uh, so Peter and I actually came out of this one tied. So congrats, Peter, as a equal winner to me. Hey, good job. Good job. We read the tea leaves better than Jonathan. I, I will be the tiebreaker on this then, at the end of the uh, as your section. <laughs> ah, I see. Yes, I mean you could potentially use one of these other art, one of these other items to potentially fill out this chart, uh, but I don't. I think I don't have any other points because I read the notes and I don't think I covered anything on the portal or on the Oracle on stage. So there you go. Well, moving on to those announcements, as uh, riveting as they were. So the first one. Uh, you know, first of all, before we get into that, let's talk about a news story that I picked up on. Uh, on the Azure Reddit, uh, there's a large number of customers reporting hitting virtual machine limits in U.S. East regions, uh, according, and also in a ZDNet article. Uh, according to ZDNet, some Azure customers began reporting they were hitting virtual machine limits in U.S. East regions, uh, particularly East U.S. 2. Uh, reports are Microsoft doesn't have enough of certain server types needed to spin up certain uh, capacities. Uh, Microsoft has been encouraging users to employ VM-reserved instances, especially in cases where they know ahead of time they will need to scale up. And this was uh, first reported by Matt Burke on Twitter and a Reddit thread, like I mentioned. Uh, and the message you get from support if you reach out to them is, unfortunately, due to high demand for virtual machines in this region, we're not able to approve your quota request at this time. We are continuing to expedite the additional capacity for US East 2. Uh, and apparently someone reported that their account team told them that it'd be about four months uh, before this issue was is fully oh, resolved. Four months, wow. Like, one of the main use cases for cloud is that I don't need to worry about lead times for hardware. You know, I don't need to order from Dell three months in advance and have it shipped to my data center and installed, then deployed. So four months is just ridiculous. Um, I, I, I hope it's kind of like mismanagement on the uh, on the side of Azure and, and, and they can push people into choosing different types of instances, which they do have capacity for. Yeah, I think it's um, this is the risk of having too many regions too soon. Yeah, <laughs> is that the capacity problem becomes much more difficult? How do you how do you you know use capex to buy that hardware? How do you get it installed quickly? How do you get it there? Um, you know, and it, this does happen to AWS uh, at times as well, but they're typically for you know either bare metal instances where you want the full box of something, or in the very niche like TensorFlow or NVIDIA TPU systems. Um, and those are and those are very clearly marked and told to you even in the press releases that you know, these are limited availability. Uh, please check with your account team if you need them, etc. Um, but this is uh, these seem like they're very common instance types, which is the, the bigger issue in my mind. It's how miserable are you if you're one of the sales reps for sure, <laughs> and you're trying to make your quota at the end of the quarter. Let me pick a different region. You know, they have so many regions in the U.S. If if they're out in that region, pick a different region. Unfortunately, they don't have three more regions, though, to help they you out. They don't, I know. But should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Now, for reals, moving on to the announcements. Uh, so my point comes from this first article. Companies of all sizes tackle real business problems with Azure AI. Uh, Azure has released a new machine learning designer, automated machine learning enhancements, and built-in notebooks uh, for designated to meet the needs of data scientists and developers of all skill levels. Uh, Microsoft is continuing to invest in the Onyx Runtime 1.0, which simplifies the process for optimized machine learning models from a variety of chipsets. And the new Azure Cognitive Services are comprehensive set of domain-specific, ready-to-use AI models. And the new Azure Cognitive Service called, called Personalizer, the industry's first AI service based on reinforcement learning and the new cognitive search function to provide search capabilities to your enterprise um, or applications. So uh, quite a few enhancements in the AI space in general. What's the name of the uh, the racing league? The Deep Racer? Yeah. 
can, can Microsoft like sponsor a team using their own AI? To, to <laughs> that would be Google? awesome. It's <laughs> Google, Azure, and Amazon all come in with their own, you know, we have the best algorithm based on yeah. our solution to drive this car. That would be fantastic and a, a great uh, marketing blitz by Azure and uh, Google if they pulled that off. That'd be great. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know if there's rules that say you can't do that. But that'd be great if you could. The new uh, Azure Synapse Analytics. Uh, today's businesses are forced to maintain two types of analytical systems, a data warehouse and a data lake. Azure Synapse Analytics is a new is a new limitless analytic service that brings together enterprise data warehousing and big data analytics. And the Azure Synapse brings these two worlds together with a unified experience to ingest, prepare, manage, and serve data for immediate business intelligence and machines. Uh, simply put, Azure Synapse is the next evolution of Azure SQL Data Warehouse. Runs all the TPC-H queries at petabyte scale. And during the demo, they uh, trounced both Redshift and BigQuery on their on-screen demo, which had no details about the schema or the query they were running <laughs> or anything else. I said transaction for a second, but it was really concurrent users. Uh, so it was oh, 100 okay. concurrent users. Okay. Uh, sorry, I, I missed it. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's good to see that the, we're getting parity between the AI offerings, for sure. This kind of innovation will only drive further innovation between the providers well I, I think from you know the data warehousing capabilities and like I, I can imagine the bi team at our day job just being like super excited about this feature because the amount of work they do with tableau and the data, data warehouse and the data ingestion they do um, this brings it on to kind of a unified experience that really makes it simple i could see them being super jazzed with this all right. Uh, the next item is the new uh, capabilities for hybrid, and this is the new Azure Arc service. Uh, this is basically, uh, I can sum around, summarize all these words into basically, this is Anthos for Azure. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so basically, customers are demanding hybrid capabilities, and Azure continues to deliver on their customers' needs to enable this purposeful innovation. Uh, two years ago, of course, they delivered Azure Stack to enable a consistent cloud model deployable on-premises. And over the past year, they've extended Azure to provide DevOps for any environment in any cloud. And now with the new Arc service, uh, Arc is a set of technologies that unlocks new hybrid scenarios for customers by bringing Azure services and management to any infrastructure, including AWS or GCP. Azure Arc is available for preview starting on Monday, and there are several benefits, including the consistent and unified approach to managing different environments using robust established capabilities such as Azure Resource Manager, Azure Cloud Shell, Azure Portal, API, and Azure Policies. Uh, developers can build containerized apps with the tools of their choice, and IT teams can ensure that apps are deployed, configured, and managed using, uniformly using GitOps. And makes it easy to implement cloud security across environments with centralized role-based access control and security policies. And you can also use this to deploy Azure SQL Database and Azure Database for Postgres uh, in your environment on top of Kubernetes or VMs, uh, all in your environment, which is really nice. Uh, so this is just the first two services that they're going to be bringing to the ARC, but I assume that they will have a lot more services coming in that direction over the next year. The ARC, huh? The services come two by two, right? <laughs> I was thinking more of like uh, they really should have an Azure React service so that you could run Azure React on the Arc, <laughs> React Arc. So it, it's strange because Microsoft, if more than anybody, um, their cloud offering is is taking longer and longer to kind of mirror the services or the features that people already had on prem, whereas Google and uh, Amazon are building new services which never existed before. Um, and so as, as far as art goes, I, I, I see it more of a, it, it's, it's more of a parity between what you already had in a, in a private data center and the cloud versus what Amazon and Google offer, which is, uh, yeah, they're kind of pushing things back the other way. They're like, you can, run, you can now run the cloud services in your local environments, whereas Microsoft are like, now you can run your things you've been running for 20 years in your local environments in the cloud. 
Well, I think this is also pushing the cloud down to the this is to run on premise, right? So you use Azure Stack or you use you know this Arc software on your own hardware, uh, and then you're you're running those services natively in your data center. So it's very similar to what Anthos is doing. Um, or you can also use this to run it on AWS or GCP. So if you want to use uh, Azure Kubernetes service, for example, you could potentially use Arc to do that across every data center you have, plus every cloud provider your company uses and have a standard Kubernetes platform, just like Anthos does. So I think I think they are doing the same thing, but they're coming at it from a very IT-focused perspective. Yeah. Are they charging like 10 grand a month to test it out? Uh, there was no pricing that I saw on any of these announcements, <laughs> mostly because it wasn't fully out uh, when this all dropped for us to report on it. So, But uh, I'm sure it'll be coming soon. It's all free with the Azure credits. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, really. Exactly, with your, with your enterprise agreement. Join us. <laughs> I do love that concept of just being able to port all of your uh, provisioning code to your own data center as well. The uh, developer tools were updated with some new capabilities. Uh, this was mentioned as an item that if they had mentioned it on stage, you would have been in good shape, Jonathan, but they didn't. I, I'm going to change the rules uh, for next time. It should be any <laughs> any any announcement during the conference should be included. Uh, sure. gonna, but it's going to be so hard to track all that down, especially like at reInvent where there's so many sessions where they announce little features here and there. It would be a nightmare. Uh, but anyway... <laughs> We can we discuss the rules later, Jonathan. <laughs> discuss the rules later. Uh, but they did uh, talk about IntelliCode and using MLAI to autocomplete code using examples from around the open source ecosystem. So they scan uh, all that great code they have in GitHub, and they determine machine learning patterns for the best code, and they help you autocomplete that in, in Visual Studio. The uh, new Visual Studio Online feature we talked about earlier, uh, one of the biggest pain points for developers is setting up their new dev box, and to make this easier for Microsoft, is releasing the preview of Visual Studio Online, which leverages the power of the cloud to make it easy to create and share dedicated development environments on demand. Uh, you can create a pre-configured, isolated environment for each project, each repo, or each task in just a few minutes, as well as they, had, uh, they did two general announcement features for both PowerShell support for Azure Functions and Azure Function Premium Plan that makes code start, uh, cold start a thing of the past on Azure. So you can now pay for the purchase, the, pr the ability to have better SLA once again on Azure. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that uh, Amazon are pushing people locally to do, to do development work? You know, they've got the, the SAM local stuff. They've got all these kind of uh, Docker containers where you can simulate Amazon services locally. You don't need to deploy things to the cloud to do unit testing or any, anything else. Whereas Azure are encouraging you, use our resources, use our resources, you know, um, it's it's a it's a it's a weird discrepancy between the two providers, which I, I not sure I understand. Well, I mean, Amazon does have Cloud Nine, which gives you the same kind of capability of this as cloud-based IDE that lets you write and build um, stuff right inside the browser and run it inside AWS's cloud. So it's more of an us two announcement to AWS, and I think what Google also announced as well, which is similar capability of a Google Cloud Editor IDE. So I think it's actually more of a catch-up than it is something innovative. Mm. Yeah. And I think everybody wants everything. We want them both. We want to be able to test locally and easily develop in the cloud. Uh, well, how do you guys both like intranets? Uh, have you, are you, has your intranet been good to you guys lately? I intranet? Never, intranet. I never visit yes, the intranet, really. It's, uh, it's one of the things where I, I, I go when... Somebody just tells me there's something good to see there. It's uh, it's like a newspaper. I, I don't read it. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're too soon. Well, uh, one, of, one of the big problems I've always had with intranets is that they're always out of date, it seems like, because uh, things change, business processes change, software changes, um, all these things. And so while there's typically pockets of information where you can find the most current stuff, it's, it's hard to find. So uh, Microsoft actually is trying to give you a solution for this problem, which is their new Project Cortex. Uh, Project Cortex is the first new service they're adding to Office 65 since MS Teams was announced two years ago. Uh, this takes different kinds of files scattered throughout a company from Word docs, PowerPoints, uh, Dynamics, Salesforce, all these things, and organizes them using AI into topics. And it basically creates uh, very many wiki page areas, like, very similar to Confluence, in fact. When I looked at the demo, uh, I was like, wow, it looks like Confluence, but with Microsoft branding. Uh, and this basically creates automatically creates these pages these experiences based on topics, and so you can kind of keep your internet more up-to-date just by companies and team members doing their normal day-to-day -day jobs. A uh, common scenario they use as an example would be a sales rep would be writing up a proposal in Word, uh, can now use the app search box on top of their Word document to look up relevant materials and drop them right into uh, a document uh, that they're working on. Uh, another example was, uh, you know, sometimes companies have their own dictionary of acronyms, uh, and so, you know, a new employee or someone who's not familiar with an acronym might get an email saying, you know, something's happening in the core project uh, next week, and they're like, I don't know what the core project is, and this AI machine learning for Cortex will actually highlight that word and link it back to the Wikipedia article that basically details what the core product is, what it means, and all the things based on that machine learning intelligence. So this is actually kind of cool. Uh, I'm curious to see what it actually looks like in reality, because uh, when you first heard about SharePoint 10, 15 years ago, it sounded cool too, and it didn't turn out so great. Uh, so I'm hoping this has a better experience uh, overall uh, in this space for this new, cap new capability of Cortex, which is uh, coming later this year. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how they can, uh, how it can determine what is relevant without having a whole lot of context, business context. Yep, I'm not sure either. That's why I'm curious to see what it does. <laughs> yeah, yeah it'll be cool. If it works, that's pretty cool. I've been burned by SharePoint over the years. Like Microsoft Small Business Server, like 19, 20 years ago, was like all driven by SharePoint, and, and it sucks. It really mm -hmm. does. And it's, it's only gotten worse and worse. And I, my first real hatred of SharePoint came when I looked at the database schema one day and was trying to figure out how to pull data out of it. And that schema yeah, no. is, is uh, scary. Yeah. So. yeah, that's like figuring out the Windows registry. <laughs> uh, the registry is more organized than that database is. <laughs> well, I guess we can just say there's definitely room for improvement here. And uh, I'm glad to see they're, they're taking some steps to fix some gaps. <laughs> Yeah, indeed, sure. indeed. Uh, some other productivity improvements for you in the Office 65 suite. Uh, Cortana feature in iOS will now read out your emails and schedule meetings for you. Uh, this will be also be able to produce you a daily email briefing that will tell you what your plan is for the day, uh, which will need to send to me every 10 minutes because my schedule changes every 10 minutes. It seems like it works. So. I don't know how that daily briefing will work out. but Yeah, I, I wish you could set Outlook to not accept meetings that are scheduled for like less than an hour in advance or something because it sucks. To, to, to check a schedule in the morning and find that somebody sent you an invite five minutes before something actually starts. It's, uh, it's uh, need more controls there over our personal time. Uh, I just wish they would port over the feature from Windows Outlook to Mac Outlook where I can basically auto-decline any meeting that is scheduled on top of another meeting. Yep. Uh, that'd be a great feature to have on the Mac client, but they don't have. Uh, the next uh, item here in the productivity side is a new Fluid framework, uh, now in beta, to make it easier for companies to integrate Office 65 collaboration directly into their application. So if you're doing a custom 
uh, application for productivity in your organization, you want to pull in those Office 365 things, uh, you can do that right there. This reminds me a little bit about Salesforce Chatter. I don't know if you guys ever used that, uh, but it was basically a social network that kind of added into Salesforce and it was supposed to make it easy for you to pull Salesforce records right into a, a two-way dialogue between you and someone else. Uh, similar, similar to that. And then uh, Microsoft Edge, which is their new browser replacement for Internet Explorer, uh, has now gone to release candidate stage. They've ditched the uh, terrible E logo, so they have a new circular logo that looks somewhat like the Firefox logo. <laughs> uh, somewhat hmm. is an, an, an understatement for sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an understatement for sure. Uh, and then uh, they also talked about how this is the new Edge browser is integrated into Bing. And so if you're in Edge and you go to private browser mode, that'll also pass over to Bing. So Bing won't track you as well when you're in private browser mode. Uh, so that's kind of nice. Uh, I did play with it because uh, I was curious what it was like on my Mac. Uh, and it's actually not bad. It's uh, not enough to sway me to move over off of Chrome or Firefox, but uh, it's not a bad uh, bad try. So maybe it'll get some adoption, especially if it starts supporting uh, some of these other technologies uh, in the Office suite. So. Mm. We'll see. I mean, the, the the fact that they have to integrate it with Bing to exclude you in uh, in like incognito mode from uh, being tracked, it's kind of weird, right? You'd think that if if you choose private browsing mode or incognito mode, then you wouldn't be tracked anyway. So why <laughs> why is it why is it a thing? You know. I mean, there's still things that get passed even in incognito mode around your IP address and uh, the you know the browser you're using, some of the stuff that should not get sent over. That that can still be determined based on other parameters they drop into the HTML code or the JavaScript code. Uh, the IP can still be used to sort of track you if it's static to your your house. So I think by extending some of that into Bing, you get a little bit more transparency, and you can see. You know, if you ever go to Google and you ask for a, a complete data download of Google, what, knows, what they know about you, it's a little bit shocking <laughs> uh, <laughs> to know what they actually know about you. Uh, and so I think there's there's definitely probably opportunities for improvement there uh, as well. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's very obvious when uh, when you do Google search, even in incognito mode, that, that the results are very context-based on your IP because... You know, we, we talk about something at home and somebody else Googles something and you can clearly see that, there's a, that, that the predictive search comes up with something that somebody else has already searched for within the, within the home. So I, I guess it kind of makes sense that, that they're, they're integrating the, the opt-out as far as uh, Bing goes and incognito. So it's, it's good. Moving on to some network features, uh, they enabled or are enabling IPv4 and IPv6 dual stack capabilities in the next month or so. The uh, Azure private link is now available in all regions. The Azure Firewall Threat Intelligence is now generally available, and the Azure Internet Analyzer, uh, which is a client-side analyzer to determine what may be impacting uh, a user's internet performance, is now available in beta as well. So quite a few enhancements to help you automate and streamline your in-network uh, capabilities of Azure. I mean, IPv6 seems like a little late to the party. <laughs> it does. It's yeah, been like right. uh, 12, 13 years now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Google, I think, already has IPv6, and so does AWS. They've had it for a couple of years, at yeah. least, if not longer. Uh, and, you know, it's in private link now available in all regions. That should have been there for at launch, in my opinion. But uh, this Internet Analyzer is actually kind of cool. If you look at the demo of it, um, you know, it's a kind of a quick little utility that the client can la can launch, and then you give it your Azure endpoints that you're gonna, that app's going to talk to, and it basically does a bunch of tests and route checks, and kind of gives you ideas of where you might see latency or issues mm. in your path. Yeah, so uh, it's uh, pretty nice. Maybe, but I, th I think those things are the types of things that I don't want to have to worry about in the cloud. I want somebody else to manage those things for me. You know, I I, I don't care about those things at that level anymore. Well, the last mile is still uh, very, very much a difficult area to troubleshoot, uh, even for a cloud provider. And so I think yeah. 
the Internet Analyzer, you know, giving that client-side measurement service uh, gives you at least more visibility into what's happening versus, you know, the the stuff you want to have an IT person run for you. So I think it I think it has a place, but I agree I would like to not worry about it. But the last mile is still problematic. Definitely, and uh, I guess we need more instrumentation in the in our web apps or our uh, thick clients, whatever else. Yeah, so instead of doing all that work, you can just deploy this capability into your yeah. app or, you know, as a, as a download from your support portal. Cool. What do you think the uh, results would be uh, if we ran that tool on my Wi-Fi network? Ooh, it would be bad. <laughs> I can tell you right now. <laughs> it would recommend you move from the area of San Francisco you live in to a place with gigabit fiber. Uh. So. Yes. But I mean, if you're commute that you've been doing to the South Bay every day for the last several months, I imagine you're ready to move. Yeah, so. really. I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I still find it weird that the you know, the tech center of the world <laughs> has some of the crappy things in it service. I know. That is a little crazy. It also has the worst traffic, too. So yeah, it's yeah. Yeah, lots of things. Uh, Azure Infrastructure as a Service has a, a ton of improvements that they've announced at uh, Azure Ignite this week. Uh, so all of the AMD EPIC systems have been updated to the new 7452 processor. So if you're using the EA v4, the EAS v4, uh, bada bada bing v4, I don't know. There are a bunch of acronyms here. Uh, those are all available to you now uh, in the regions, of course, where they have them <laughs> or enough of them for you. Uh, there's a new NVV4 series VM for HPC workloads. The Azure VMware capability has now been extended to Western Europe. Azure Migrate to streamline migration from physical to virtual machines uh, from on-premise to the cloud has been updated. The Azure Gen 2 VMs are now available. Azure Virtual Machine Scale Sets uh, features are now in preview for you. And then several more HVC workloads and Azure VMs uh, available for you in preview, as well as the new proximity placement groups are generally available. And the biggest announcement, which they had the least amount of information on, is the Azure Spot VMs coming very soon to Azure. Uh, finally being the last of the cloud providers who offer you spot. Yeah, that is, I mean, it's, it's a weird stealth announcement, really. I, I, I assumed that everybody had spot, some kind of equivalent of spot instances at least, but to see this kind of like the last paragraph of the, the press release was uh, kind of weird, really. <laughs> it was very, very, very light on yeah, details, definitely. which makes me yeah. think that they're maybe very early in this process to build this capability, but I'm glad to see they're going to get it as well. So I think that's a, a good improvement. Yeah. I'm guessing they're going to they're actually going to land in U.S. East in four months. <laughs> uh, maybe not, though, because you want to sell the capacity you are not selling in spot, not the capacity you need. So <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, but if, uh, if it, you know, the, one of the problems with Asia is that you can't get the capacity out of that spot market pricing. It might be a little bit steep. Yeah. So yeah. Watch, watch out for that. And then, of course, uh, for your business-critical applications that you're willing to pay a lot of money uh, for pr uh, premium performance, there are several new features for you as well. Uh, we mentioned earlier the uh, premium functions capability to now eliminate cold start issues. There's also a preview for a new smaller 4, 8, and 16 gigabit size on premium SSDs, standard SSDs, and Ultradisk to provide lower costs for your customers. Uh, review, preview of a new bursting capability on application applicable premium SSD with up to 30x performance for spiky workloads. Uh, preview of a new Azure Data Lake Service multi-protocol access, which provides core to blob features with Azure Data Lake Storage Gen 2, including logging, tiering, and event grid integration. 
Uh, preview of the Azure Peering Services, which targets customers with an internet-first network strategy for accessing Azure and SaaS services. The general availability of satellite support for ExpressRoute. The general availability of the Azure Bastion host. And the preview of the new object notification service to support geo-distributed apps. And many enhancements to the Azure Security Center, including integration with Qualys. Support for Kubernetes containers. Integration of security recommendations for partners, including Checkpoint, Tenable, and CyberArk. And Sentinel enhancements, including connectors for both Citrix and Zscaler. On the and then of course Azure Managed Disks, which we've talked about uh, in the last few weeks. So, lots of really interesting announcements for you in Azure. If you are an Azure customer, definitely check out the recaps that Azure is sending out to you. A lot of really great information, uh, probably more than we even covered here, just because there was a very large amount of content <laughs> dropped this week from Azure Ignite. So, that's it for uh, Ignite. A lot of new features. It's, it's it's been pretty cool. Nothing nothing kind of wowed me really. No, uh, no amazing new features. A lot of catch-up things, but um, it's 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 good that they're much more on par with Google and Amazon than they were before. For me, it's all it's the it's not necessarily the differentiators. It's the it's the showstoppers that you need and you don't have yet that stop people from moving significant workloads into your cloud. Got to get rid of all the showstoppers. Yep. Yep, for sure. All right, moving on to the lightning round, Peter. Lightning round. AWS for WordPress plugin now available and with new Amazon CloudFront workflow. So this is the uh, most interesting announcement I've seen from AWS in a long time because this is a very niche, uh, full application requirement. This is not a primitive in any way. Uh, and I'm super happy about this because it, it will be used on the CloudFront website. <laughs> oh, nice. So what are they doing? Are they uh, caching particular assets or what's the, uh, what's the detail here? Yeah, so basically they plugged a plugin in directly into the WordPress uh, code so that any of the static objects, the the podcast MP3, fi MP3 files, etc., all get uploaded to Azure CloudFront. They handle all the distribution of the CloudFront. They set it up for you. They they do all the redirects, so it's really kind of simple. Uh, as well as it integrates into a bunch of other things. So if this was a uh, if our WordPress site was doing blog posts more regularly than just a 25th anniversary or 25th episode recap show uh, blog post, uh, you can actually link it to Polly, and it would give you a Polly um, a recording of what your blog oh, post said, which is kind of cool. So there's some definitely some interesting integrations with it. It does uh, tie directly into uh, roles, which is nice. So I, the uh, CloudPod website runs on a container on an ECS host that I run in my account, and uh, that's all using task-based roles. And so it was really easy to set up and really co configure. I haven't turned it on quite yet because I'm a little concerned about how it'll mess with our metrics uh, for how the podcast mm. downloads. Okay. But uh, uh, it is uh, pretty interesting to see uh, what it can do. Because uh, I had another plugin that was doing everything but the podcast media uh, that I paid for, uh, which was pretty good as well. Uh, but this is just much more streamlined, much simpler. Cool. Amazon Chime now supports an in-room experience on Dolby Voice Room. How much should Dolby pay Amazon to build this feature for Amazon? <laughs> I, yeah. How weird, right? The last thing I care about on a conference call with a bunch of tech people is the quality of their voices. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not asking for singing or dancing or anything else. I just want the details. So the you know the the, the soft tone voices and the the wonderful fidelity is 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 kind of meaningless, really. It's a weird product because I I had never heard of it. So it's similar to what uh, Google created, which was kind of this very small conference system to tie into Hangouts, um, you know, on Google. Uh, it's basically just a it's a speakerphone and a, a small webcam, and that's the Dolby Voice Room. So it's very very lightweight. Um, but yeah, it, it's a little weird to come from Dolby of all people. <laughs> yeah, I guess it, they're still maintaining relevance. 
I don't know why yeah. they. I don't know why they want to compete with Polycom. It just seems like a bad business case for Kobe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. AWS CodeStar enables automating toolchain setup through CloudFormation. I mean, if you want to have a really weird implementation of CloudFormation, this is a way to do it. Would you? What? What if you want to run that CloudFormation via a pipeline? What would you use? Jenkins. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible enterprise, this Jenkins. Which I, code first. pipeline? Code pipeline, yeah. Jonathan. This is the Amazon section. No, it's not. <laughs> AWS Secrets Manager now supports larger size for secrets and resource policies and higher request, request rate for Get Secret Value API. I mean, if I were to be a guessing man, I would say that they're going to be announcing Secrets Manager integration for Lambda. At reInvent, that would require this higher request rate problem. Ooh. Only fifteen hundred requests a second, though. That's uh... it's up from a thousand. It went up to a thousand yeah. before. It was it was like a hundred to a thousand out to fifteen hundred. They're just slowly ramping this one up. You can now create serverless applications with an automated deployment pipeline from the AWS Lambda console. Which everyone wants is a serverless application that requires a GUI to configure and maintain. Perfect. So there's there's only one thing I dislike more than developing applications in the GUI, and that is the SAM platform. <laughs> I've tried so hard in the last two days to love and, uh, and develop some kind of like sensible kind of guidelines for people to use SAM to, to do local development and local testing, and it kind of sucks. Like if, if you search for documentation and uh, you, you want to follow a simple, what should be a simple Hello World tutorial, and you end up with like nine or ten tabs open for all the different linked pieces of documentation you need to follow with the, the instructions for. It really sucks. It really does. So have you tried serverless framework That's what yet? I'm trying. It's a serverless framework. But like... No, no, no. Sam is Amazon's thing. Serverless.com, which is the serverless framework, is something different. No, no. The, 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 the Sam got kind of open source as, as the serverless framework. I don't. I actually don't think that's the case. I think they're they're because serverless is designed for any cloud, where SAM is Amazon specific. Uh, that's my understanding, at least. And I met the developer actually, the main guy who created serverless.com. Uh, I can I can connect you to so you can bitch at him directly. I would love that for sure. It's like they give you all these tools, like oh, we can run step functions locally and uh, and lambda functions locally. But if you actually follow the guidelines for SAM to build the you know the, the template and YAML and everything else, like you reach a point where you realize. You can't actually go any further with this thing. You can't. You can't like generate the state file. You can't generate the the stem functions, uh, uh, the, the state machine, or anything else. It's like they missed a step someplace. Yeah. So the AWS serverless application model is is different than the serverless framework, is my understanding. Hmm. Okay. So, New I, feature I, enables visibility of employees' AWS certification completions. <laughs> Because who doesn't love violating your employee's privacy by telling them, hey, your certification ends in two weeks. Please go get certified. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 let's talk about the elephants in the room here, which is I, I think some of the best tech people I've worked with have always been the people with no certifications. You know, they, they don't... Pr uh, I, I feel attacked, they, Jonathan. I they don't attacked. prioritize those things, really. I have a certification. I, I'm sure you do. Are you just saying I'm? Are you just saying I'm not one of the best people I'm you not, work with? I'm not devaluing what you have, but I'm saying that there are other people who don't have certifications that are equally as good. I bet. I bet Peter has a certification too. I have 
all do I have all five? No, I have four, I think. I have like four. I just ABS want you to remember sets. this, Peter, when you're scoring the lightning round. Or should I just give it to myself? Oh no! This is just that Jonathan attacked oh. you. Oh, oh yeah. Said you weren't, you weren't technically as capable. I'm just, I'm just saying when you that score is, the writing round, remember these things. I'm gonna have, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be completely objective today when scoring. Absolutely, I'm, I'm not I'm even sure gonna let that enter yeah, my mind. Sure thing. <laughs> <laughs> He's nothing but the utmost, utmost judge, jury, and executioner. But, but when you take it, when when you get the certification. And, and you're very, very qualified. Let's, you know, you've worked with Amazon for like five, six, seven years or something, and you get a certification like an associate architect. People look at you and say, oh, you're only an associate architect. Well, why don't you have the, why don't you have the next thing? Why don't you have the next thing? It's like this constant escalation of, um, of qualifications. And I'm sure Amazon love it because they charge you for these things. But I, I, I kind of feel like, I'm sure, they, they somewhat justify um, or at least demonstrate your skill in a certain thing. But um, I, I, I kind of disagree with the focus on certifications as being a metric to measure good engineers by. I don't I think, think it's one. It I think, I think it's, it's one more of the metrics. And I, like when, when, we, when we interview people, like we, we require everybody to get certifications, mostly because we have to, to meet certain levels of partner yeah, As a partner, you, it's a much different thing. <laughs> but, but, I, but because we had to do that, I went and got the certs because I always, you know, I've been very similar to Jonathan in my thought process, but getting the pro certs, like you got to really understand some of the details of the services. And it, it, it set my expectations when I do interview new people who still have to go through full hands-on, you know, screen share, uh, brutal sessions with us. Yeah. But, um, but knowing they have their cert, uh, I know what they went through to get it. And I know that they have a base understanding that I don't know if they have, if they don't have the cert, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Oh, maybe. And then I gotta ask. Maybe. Right? I gotta ask all the questions. Yeah. I mean, I've interviewed a lot of people who have either lost their jobs or decide they want to get a new job and they go off and they get a certification because they think that's what they need to get the new the new gig kind of thing. And it's 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 a checkbox. Like they, they with no practical experience in yeah in, it's a checkbox. yeah in, in in how to actually use these things or how how to architect services to use these things properly it's it's nothing more than a checkbox and so I, I i think sure it it shows that you at least have some awareness of these services but uh, in the grand scheme of things i think experience trumps everything all i hear is fear just fear uncertainty and death okay. that's right we've, but, we've gone yeah. into that's, all I, that's all i hear is that you're you're afraid to take the test i I, I don't have a certification I, I'll, I'll say that right now. Yeah. We took it from lightning round to mud round. <laughs> Back to lightning round. AWS RoboMaker now supports conditional over-the-air deployment. I'm looking forward to this getting connected to Google and Azure so they can then win the uh, car race on the Deep Racer. Yes. You know, I've, I've been thinking about this. I saw this announcement and I'm thinking the cars are just a distraction, right? You know that Amazon are using this this same tooling to build their delivery drones, for example, and so by by having like the selective um, over the air deployments, they can do blue green between different sets of drones, whatever the case may be. So it's I, I think um, I'm looking forward to some really cool announcements that reinvent around the kind of applications they developed using this technology. We will look out for your guesses on that. I'm a little nervous. It's going to be a disappointment this year. Nope, we'll nope see. no disappointment. It's going to be the best year ever. <laughs> best year ever. <laughs> now available new C5D instance sizes and bare metal instances. 
So normally this would be a main show topic, but uh, we talked about the C5s not that long ago, the new uh, massive SAP HANA, and since they didn't include pricing, I just said, it's lightning round this week. Nice. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, C5D 24X large, only 96 processors, and only 192 gig of RAM. Google Auto ML translation goes GA plus updates to translation API. Does it support Australian? Ooh. Nice try. <laughs> AWS in a row. Nope. <laughs> AWS service catalog enables transfer of provisioned product ownership. I mean, if this is a step towards being able to transfer things like EC2 instances and RDS databases to other accounts, then this is awesome. If this is really just for service catalog, then I'm kind of disappointed. That's kind of weird, right? Once you deployed something, there's no concept of ownership of a, of a resource. So to kind of like half-ass implement this in, in service catalog is bizarre to me. I think this is really about, because uh, I think when you deploy something in service catalog, it's tied to your user persona mm -hmm. in the yeah. console. And so when you leave, then you know if you want to update it, you can't do that. So now you can transfer to someone else in your AWS account. But you know, that's it's a pretty niche problem because you know, I, I can count the number of companies I've seen use Amazon Service Catalog on one hand. So Yeah. I, I don't want really to give credit for fixing things you know, fixing problems that you created yourself. So yeah. This this is nothing to me. <laughs> I kinda like service catalog. <laughs> Amazon S3 inventory now reports the intelligent tiering access tier for objects. What do you mean you like service catalog? <laughs> for, for what? <laughs> I, like I like it so that people could launch a, an approved set of services without having the rights to launch the underlying native. But why don't you want to give people those, that, that level of control over what they deploy? Because like, they don't know what they're doing. They just get themselves into trouble. They just make a mess. This way they can only launch, but they you get self-service of a higher level of service offering that you can define for your business. I don't see why you don't like it. Give me an example. Hey, like, like what, what kind of thing? Uh, you, give me like a really good example of like, what can you put into a service catalog that you want your users, your incompetent users to, to self-service uh, that, that you don't want to manage at a different level? Wait, that you don't want them to manage at a different yeah. level? Um, a dev environment. You you put a dev environment for a particular service, like just load up the whole right. Yeah, just just load up the whole thing in Service Catalog. They spin it up. They get their endpoint. They don't need access to go also spin up fifty C five servers that they didn't have any uh, need for or made a mistake when they were using their uh, CLI credentials and they wrote some crazy nested loop function i mean I, I guess i could see this for some use cases like you know like performance testing or qa where you want them to deploy like a a known configuration yeah but as far as dev goes like you, you want those people to be able to tweak with things they're the people you should be trusting with, with with deploying things well it depends though if you have a devops organization yes because they know the whole stack if you have developers who don't and you don't you don't want to teach them how you've Create service catalog and say click there. You get your you get your you get your stuff. Yeah. We should talk more on anyway, this. That's just my opinion. <laughs> you don't have to use it. I'll, I won't make you use it, I promise. <laughs> I guess I guess even in a bigger organization that require you know, that it's very distributed, you know, IT is one organization, but you know, you have business units that wanna be able to be enabled 
uh, instead of allowing shadow IT to happen, you kind of give the service catalog option to get standardized items out exactly. to teams. It's a big enterprise feature. I don't see it as a startup feature yes. or a, a, a niche feature. But for companies that have massive standardization and approval processes and workflows and all that, I think it makes sense. For yes, them. I agree. Thank you. Amazon <laughs> S3 inventory now reports the intelligent. Oh, no, I already said that one, didn't I? No, no we, we never got, talked you, about you it. You got interrupted because he was so so incredulous that you like service catalog. Yeah. What do you guys think about Amazon S3 inventory and now reporting the intelligent tiering access tier for their objects? About done time. <laughs> Seems like something you would have announced, you know, with the feature, since the whole point of intelligent tiering is to move from high cost to low cost. You think you'd want to be able to report on it with an inventory? You know, it just seems you logical. What you don't want to you don't want to parse a uh, twenty gig CSV file to find out? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love doing a looping a you know API call, then dump that into a CSV, and then dump that into BigQuery and make a BigQuery picture out of it. So yeah, I love doing that. Finally, Google is partnering with HCL Technologies to scale enterprise cloud adoption, which is the most TK thing I think I've seen in a while. Because uh, when I was at Google. Open world HCL had a massive booth, so I'm gonna guess that they have a pretty good relationship with uh, Thomas Carrion, and that's why they're now a Google partner. So, yeah, that's not not weird at all. Yeah, I have uh, nothing to add to that for sure. I mean, that, a Google partnering with HCL or a HCL partnering with Google? It's uh, <laughs> it's like who's who's benefiting <laughs> here? I think it's HCL for sure. Yeah, but, I mean, like if you really want a good partner, you should just go to Foghorn Consulting. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which. Yeah. Peter, why don't you tell us about your new yeah. status with uh, Azure? Yeah, we're now a gold partner with Azure. Woohoo! Congratulations! Yay, so all this, uh, all this new uh, stuff, you got to get certified on now. So good luck to you on the. Uh, and if you could come back to us with a, an answer on how to decipher the premium ultra, uh, you know, SSDs, I would really help. That'd be helpful. <laughs> oh. So we're, I'll we're get right on that now. I'll get right yeah, on please that. Get, please get right on that. Get one of your. Your fantastic engineers too. Now, are you a premium gold great. partner or just a regular gold partner? <laughs> <laughs> are you We're... an ultra premium gold partner? <laughs> just gold. Just gold. Just gold. Okay. Twenty-four karat though. We are twenty-four karat gold. Excellent partner. Yeah, that's awesome. Congratulations to you and the Foghorn yeah. team. Thank well you. And the winner of the lightning round likes service catalog and has a certification. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I don't. It was a bit stretched when you said I like service catalog, Wait, but I understand eh, service catalog. Don't, don't make me rethink my decision. <laughs> all right, all right, we're good. Well, it's uh, been a fantastic week, a busy week with Ignite. Uh, we are heading into reinvent season, uh, so we will be giving you guys some tips and tricks uh, for t attending reinvent over the next few weeks, uh, and we will have the reinvent prediction show, which hopefully we do a little bit better on uh, than we did on the. Azure show. So there you go. Uh, have a good week, and we'll see you next week on the cloud. Good night, everybody. And that is the week in cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and tweet us your feedback at hashtag thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions.